it's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a podcast tag. Get through. I'm Open Mike Eagle. Welcome to season four of what had happened was. I got to say, when I first started doing this show with Prince Paul in season one, I had no idea whether or not we'd make it this far. And part of the reason we have the esteemed guests that we have for this season is because of the success of the seasons prior to this Shout out and a big thank you and much gratitude to our guests for this entire season. The one and only Quest Love. And throughout this season, we'll discuss the first four albums of the Roots Crew. So that's Organics, it's Do You Want More, it's Illadelf Half-Life, and it's Things Fall Apart. This is the Stony Island Audio Network, your home for hip-hop storytellers. We tell our own stories over here. So check us out and get the Dad by Rap Pod, the Fatherhoods Podcast, Creativity and Captivity, The Questions, Hip Hop Trivia, Super Duty, Tough Work, and more. In addition to being your host, Open Mike Eagle, I'm also a, a fully, full-blown, fully developed rap artist. I'm announcing some tour dates. In December 6th, I'll be in Houston. December 7th in Dallas. December 8th in New Orleans. December 10th in New York. December 11th, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. December 12th in D.C., December 13th in Boston. December 16th in Miami, Florida. And December 17th in Orlando. Go to MikeEagle.net to get full details on those shows coming up soon. To support the podcast, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash openmikeeagle. We have a Discord there. We do a secret podcast that's there only, and we'll be doing some extras for this season of What It Happened Was. That stuff will be dropping there. Also, you can support the podcast by using the codes in the ad reads. If you want to use those products, please do use those codes. And with that, without further ado, I'll give you the first episode of season four of What It Happened Was with the one and only Quest Love. Ladies what and gentlemen, what, from the what, depths of what Stony what, Island, what, we what, present what, to what, you what, what it happened what, was season what, what, four. What it happened was season four. Fantastic like Secret Wars. Quest Love with the stories, got them leaning for. It's what the hardcore feeling for. And now I'm covering you the scene before. We break it down, you can reabsorb. Bring it around like a meteor. We get it moving like a stevedore. Beat the podcast, lead the boys. The straight hands, it's a perfect score. We're not your chips out the circuit board. We're here to help with what you're searching for. To inspire what you're working toward. A little closer than you were before. Updated software version for such and such and furthermore. It's like this. Ladies and gentlemen. This what is Open it, Mike Eagle, welcoming you to season four of What It Happened Was, with the one and only, Quest Love. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. 
You can use the app to upload new releases, see your distro kit bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The distro kit app is now available on iOS. Go to the app store and download it. Distro kit also has a new feature called instant share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. I'm going to publish a book consisting of just the emails it took to make this happen. (laughs) It'll be a very... Very thick book. Yo, man. One thing that I'll say is the secret to our success is that, you know, we all made sort of a a collective promise to be uh, janky free. Janky free. But I will say that, you know, that we're 98% of the time very efficient. I will say, though, because of my hyperbolic reputation slash little boy that cried wolf reputation <laughs> like if i come running in the room with like really really excited like guys we gotta do this thing I, you could almost hear like the voice in their head like i roll like all right i mean what this what this, is it this, this so-called podcast that you uh fell in love with like you know so in my in my world you know i already have like 16 tasks to do yeah. so yeah of course you know a lot of people in my circle their main job is like all of them are overqualified to solve Rubik's cube uh, kind of uh, puzzles in record time. Mm. So sometimes the, the the ball gets quasi dropped, but it's not like we're just like oh, no, we don't care. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I I couldn't imagine uh, more of a busy situation. Man, you, you look. I, I, I'm here because I, you know. To, to be honest, I don't want to like embarrass you, whatever. Like, but this oh, try, pod- try this. <laughs> nah, man. Like this podcast saved my life. Man. Uh, I'll say like three podcasts. Like really, like during the pandemic, probably the thing that I did the most. Well, one, you know, I quarantined up in a, a farm that was about maybe. Okay, so that was that was during the period in which. Um, maybe for a good four months, uh, it was like the wild, wild west mm. and there were no police presence whatsoever. So this is on the, the, where you were. Yeah, where I was. So, you know, I could get, I could drive a hundred miles per hour with no sweat whatsoever, like isolated, like, like it's v- the opening scene of Vanilla Sky to work to, to the Tonight Show and back to the farm I was at and maybe like 45 minutes, but in normal times, that drive would have taken like an hour and twenty minutes. So, it's just saying that, you know, three three podcasts like helped me down, and yours yours was definitely number one. Just like for a taste of normalcy. Yeah, yeah, it worked. I'm very embarrassed. Thank you. Thank you. Great work. Uh, I, I'm 
uh, over the moon to have you here, uh, one of my pine sky guests, because there's not a lot of people really qualified to do the kind of deep dives we do with that level of catalog. And then just for me personally, I have to be that into the work right. <laughs> for it to for, for, for it to really work. Yeah. If anything, I I would have thought that I would have done a disservice to the show because mm. I almost feel like there was a point where it was like too available. There was really? there was a point where um was it like nineteen ninety four or something? No, no, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> there there was a point where um my third year at the Tonight Show, and this is probably like the last year. Okay, so I'll say the Tonight Show now for just technical uh, technical sake for for your audience. But what I refer to what I do on weekdays is I'm a student at Thirty Rock University, and that is probably and you being a comedy head, that building is probably one of the most educational buildings of all time because what you have is it's, it's like a, a stratosphere and you have different galaxies and you know the seth floor is different than the snl floor right. which is different than the today show floor and the tonight show floor and the local news and like on the third floor where msnbc is and literally this being like my 14th 15th year there it's everything i ever learned uh in my professional life in the last 14 years will probably last me to the age of 70. But the thing is that, oh, also fair warning, I'm going to rabbit hole the shit out of this podcast. So <laughs> midway in my head, I'm like, wait, what was the point I was trying to make? <laughs> uh, but I know it was something you were saying you were too available. Right. Well, so the thing was in the, in the third year of being there, and this is like also the last year that the, the Lonely Island guys we're going to be at SNL, mm -hmm. like Andy Samberg and all those dudes. And Samberg catches me in the hallway once. And he's like, he just said, as a matter of fact, he's like, yo, Amir, you know, like, you know, like it's it's a cliche to always get you in a documentary to talk about stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, he was trying to pitch me on being a talking head for that movie that they did, like that mockumentary. Pop star. Yeah, the yeah. pop star film. And um, I walked away for a second and I sat my Wait. What'd he say? And I ran up. I was like, yo, what'd you say? He's like, yeah, you know, like you're always in documentaries and stuff. And I was like, yo, I'm like a cliche now. Like it's like oh. I roll city when you see Questlove give commentary on a story. He's like, well, yeah, you know, every time I turn around, it's like, there you are, there you are. So I was like, oh man, I got to cut back and stop being available. Because I'm almost certain between like all those mammoth posts I used to do on OK Player right. and story, my Twitter account yeah. and the way that my... Instagram account is some person's obituary spot and all that. Like, I'm almost certain that there's a pitchfork rider just like waiting to <laughs> <laughs> waiting to roast me. <laughs> like that story. I don't. I don't want to be like a you know like in someone's sights for a, a target takedown. So I hear that. But uh, not to worry. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to pull us out of the rabbit hole from time to time because that's I, gonna be your job. I do want to make focused, sure, yeah, because we don't want this to be a five hour. <laughs> I mean, we do. We just don't have five hours, is right? The problem. Exactly. Um, exactly. But I do want to start at the beginning. I kind of went back and forth a lot on whether or not I was gonna cover organics. I ripped the vocal back, flip yo. The kid is a bad bro. I could drip it, hip it, then dip into calypso. Adios, amigo, which means I got stitchy yo. Makes you wonder about my number. Guess my address or my PO. Here's a hint. I'm from Villa with the.
I didn't hear it when it came out, of course. I mean, I imagine a lot of people didn't. I, mean, I didn't hear it when it came out. <laughs> right. It came, it came to me, you know, quite a few years later, and I went back to it, and I loved it. But I think just in terms of the story of The Roots, we kind of have to start there. You have to get the beginning Yeah, of the we got to begin at the beginning. But I right. think even before that, I mean, a little bit of background on you, I think, would be good. All right. I'm going to see now I'm in my head because I'm like, oh, God, everyone's heard this story before. So I'll give you the most distinct version of how I got to performing arts high school. So basically, what I will say is that I was born to uh, an oldies doo-wop singer who was just getting his second wind um, in the 70s in terms of uh, the way that, you know, the rock and roll culture is like the first national culture starting in the 50s. And then, as you know, with all music, like, I'm sure now today, like, uh, there's some 40-year-old waiting for the Spice Girls to reunite. You know, whatever's hitting 20, 25 years ago is what's happening now. So as far as nostalgia culture is concerned. So um, my dad, having sort of retired from doo-wop music, he entered the game in like 1955 and sort of waned off by 19, like 65, I think. And by that time, he had met my mother, who was like um, a print model from Pittsburgh. And they decided to open up a fashion boutique uh, in West Philadelphia. And uh, as with most of America, once uh, King was assassinated, there was riots all over. And pretty much the response was like all the inner cities burned down. So, um, you know, a lot of the dilapidated, uh, abandoned sort of what we view as the ghetto Mm -hmm. was a result of just uh, buildings burning out of anger and you pretty much have to start anew. So um, they kind of got out of, well, you know, part of it was white flight and another part of it was just, you know, the neighborhood wasn't the neighborhood anymore after King was assassinated. And my father's manager, I believe, um, a gentleman named Larry Marshak, who... um, Larry Maggot, who basically, uh, he was Ticketron. He would later, in a succession way, get coup d'etat out of Ticketron. And his underling started what we now know as like uh, Live Nation. Mm-hmm. So, but he was my dad's manager back then. So he was trying to figure out ways, things, normal things we do now. Like, hey, you could play colleges. Right. Or uh, there's this thing called nostalgia culture where people were 30 now want to hear music back when they were 15. So suddenly these shows started happening where you would get my dad and Harvey and the Moonglows and Jackie Wilson. And, Jackie Wilson. You know, like groups of the 50s, Chuck Berry and whatnot, and do these package tours or do these one-spot dates at Madison Square Garden or the Spectrum in Philly and that sort of thing. So that was enough to sustain my father probably from like 68 till maybe 74. And that was a, a very short, because by 74, disco culture starts, starts. And the nostalgia for the second wave, which was like the British invasion, 
you know, the, the, whatever was happening in the early 60s, you know, it's, you only get like five years to cash in on your notoriety. So as a result, uh, my dad saw the future coming in order to sustain a living. He decided to get off of the oldie circuit and start the nightclub circuit. And in the nightclub circuit, it's um pretty much, uh, I'll say, what we now know is like when you see wedding bands and whatnot. Yeah. So my dad having the four relatively known hits and ballads uh, from his era was able to turn like, you know, those those four pieces of oxtail meats into like a big giant pot of soup, like, you know, with a lot of vegetables, a lot of broth and, you know, my four hits. Right. And he uh, kind of came with a package. And the package was basically like he would do these nightclub gigs uh, required to do five shows a night, which was very typical. Like the band he hires has to uh, know the songs of the day. So they're they're the DJ. Um, whatever. Ohio Players, Earth, Wind, Fire, like Casey and Sunshine, whatever's popping at the time. So those are called dance sets. So like set number one is more like a quiet, uh, a quiet uh, dinner, you know, play this masquerade by George Benson, like that sort of thing. And then my dad's show was 45 minutes. And by that time, it's my mother, my father, and my aunt Karen uh, as the main show. Lee Andrews and the Hearts. And then they take a break. The band does another half-hour dance music. That's the way I like it, or, you know, that sort of thing. And then the second show uh, of my parents happens. Long, long and long That's done around, like, one in the morning. And then the band does one more dance set. And the club closes at two in the morning or now, three. Now, this was one club or this toured in a, a circuit? Uh, so the way that territories work is we lived in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. So um, up in the Catskills, there's a lot of like, think of like dirty dancing. Right. Like, was that like an adult summer camp or something like that? <laughs> so there would be at least 16 of those in the Catskills. And they're always needing entertainment. Right. On any given night. So they might hire my dad for a week, give him hotel Residency, money. Right. Yeah. And then um, there's also the Poconos where, you know, because some states are trying to like, make gambling legal. So, so in the entertainment. Right. So, it's you know, like the tri-state, uh, New England, the Poconos, they always have those little like one-off Caesars, blah, 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 where you can gamble or on a, or you're from Illinois, so they did those on boats, river right? Boats, yeah. Right. So same thing. Like wherever there's gambling and river boats, there needs to be alcohol and some sort of entertainment. entertainment right. right. And then Atlantic City, some spots in Puerto Rico, Miami, occasionally Vegas. So that was enough. That, that little uh, just spotted sections. Um, and occasionally it'll be some weird things. Like we, you know, we did like two weeks in Muncie, Indiana. Or like in Bismarck, North Dakota. Now, you're saying we at this point. How old are you? So here's the deal. Um, what makes me different than the average kid around that time is I'm the last generation whose parents didn't believe in babysitting. Like the idea of a stranger coming in my house to watch my kid? No. Like, so just think of it like farm work. The reason why um, Jackson-sized families existed 
between like the 30s and the 60s was, okay, I got to make a lot of kids so they can help me on the farm. So um, even though it's, I had, well, I have five siblings because, you know, my dad is a singer. But <laughs> <laughs> between my mother and my father, it's me and my sister Dawn. And um, so basically we had to be somehow like part of the act. Now, I know you're asking like, so are you in these nine clubs? The idea of scandal culture, like the idea of like, you're underage and show me your ID. None of that scandal culture really didn't exist until like the late 80s. Mm. You know, once like scandals started happening with like preachers and whatnot, but people were pretty much looking the other way. So right. the idea of a five-year-old. Now, when I was five, they wanted me on stage with them so they can keep an eye on me. But of right. course, like, I just can't stand there. So, um, <laughs> in a little suit. <laughs> right. But I'm, I'm playing tambourine. Um, I had a toy saxophone and he had, he had a large band. So think of those like 70 soul bands where people are doing the, yeah, like, the I'm doing the dance yeah. routines. Okay. And people just thought like I was a, I can't say the M word, a, a short person. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I, I, me in the horn section, like I just be in the horn section, like doing all this stuff, or whatever. But I'm like humming into a gazoo, not playing uh, saxophone. Um, that was like from five, and I, I mean, I also joke that I was the family GPS because it was also like, hey, can you tell me how to get to da 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 lane and whatever? And I write it down. Uh, Dad taught me how to read a Rand McNally map. So by the time I was seven. Uh, he gave me more responsibility and I was responsible for like um, shining his shoes, uh, cleaning his suede, whisk, whisk brooming. Okay, this is how you steam. Like we're in hotels, so there might not be an ironing board. So, you know, run the, run the shower and steam my suits, run the, your mom's dresses to the cleaners. So seven, I was on like wardrobe duty and packing duty. So I'm like, I'm the shit in Tetris. <laughs> so, um, and then when I was nine, my sister used to operate the spotlight in the nightclub. She got upgraded to being in the band once my aunt got married and left the group. So my sister then became part of the group. What did she, did she play? My sister is a singer songwriter. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. She's currently right now, like at, at Naris in the, in the, in the Grammy world, that sort of thing. But, um, that left the job of being a uh, tour manager or uh, production manager to me. Mm. So yeah, as a 10 year old, it was very normal for a 10. And I always joke that, you know, at the tonight show, I don't even trust 23 year old college educated intern to take my lunch order yet. I'm a 10 year old coming into a nightclub and seriously ask like, okay, I need a ladder. I need a razor blade. Okay, so we can't do purple and green because dad says that that looks bad on black skin. So I need, um, give me a razor blade and show me your, 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 your light gels. So I had to cut light gels and put peach and yellow in the light things and mark, mark the floor. I had to ring out the monitors, um, make sure the band sound checks. I mean, that was, watching the band was like my dad's thing. Right. But like, I would also like lose my mind if one of them, plays the song wrong or whatever like that part of me was early so i was like on light duty from nine to ten um and also incidentally like one of the one of the richest fourth graders ever so <laughs> all right weird flex <laughs> no, well, this, this is, you know people are like how do you get your record collection like literally like i think by 
by 1980, I was making like maybe three hundred dollars a week for 1980. Yeah. Of course, like you're saving for college or whatever, but no, nah, I was buying records. And then the the real jump in the pool was at Radio City Music Hall. My dad's uh, drummer got in a motorcycle accident, and uh, he just looked at me like, "All right, well, you're the drummer now and the band leader." Whoa! And so uh, I got whisked off to Macy's on 34th Street to get a, a suit. And at the age of 12 at Radio City Music Hall in front of 7,000 people, I led the entire band for my dad's show. And he was elated because it's like, yo, I don't have to pay someone $850 a week. I could just give him like $300. And, you know, so he's saving 700 bucks. And I know the show and I'm the drummer and I can help on background. So he's like... Saving <laughs> instant, you know, he's saving a thousand dollars, you know, instantly. And I basically remained my dad's band leader. Like I started at Radio City Music Hall, and the night before we exiled to Europe as the Roots, my last gig was at Madison Square Garden. Wow. As far as my schooling's concerned, um, I pretty much, you know, I traveled with them. Most of these gigs were sort of local, mm -hmm. Atlantic City and that sort of thing. So, you know, after school, just drive there an hour and a half, that sort of thing. Come home at one in the morning, two in the morning, get up for school. Same stories like the Jackson 5, that sort right. of thing. But then sometimes they would have to go to Miami for like three weeks. So I'd have to stay at my grandmom's house and they would get another drummer and that sort of thing. Um, so I always, I went to performing arts school. Uh, for the first six years of my life, first through sixth grade. And then something happens in the early 80s, which is like, I haven't never watched the speech, but whatever like Reagan's America was, like his version of Make, Make America Great Again, for all those hippies uh, that lived through the hedonistic 70s, mm -hmm. they're now turning 40 and a lot of guilt has set in. And suddenly there was a, a massive wave of like Christianity. Right. And conservatism, and especially with black people, you know, like, because Reagan, you know, the GOP party, like, tells you stuff and, oh, yeah, I believe it. Right. Not so much now, but back then. Right. You, you used to have the moral oh, sort you of brought it, yeah, yeah, you brought the whole moral, like, you know, this is wrong, this is a sin, that sort of thing. So they took me out of performing arts school and put me more in, like, a, a Christian school that was sort of like, I don't, well, you're from Illinois, so do you, do you know Marva Collins is? Okay, so she was like. She was a, a school teacher in one of the worst schools in Chicago. And uh, like the kids were from like the dregs of society and Cabrini Green, whatever. And she single-handedly said, I'm gonna get all these kids into like Ivy League schools. And she did it. If you if you have Stevie Wonder's um songs in the Key of Life mm -hmm. record, when you hear black man, those those kids doing back and forth, that's her class. Anyway, so, like, she was, like, turning those kids into, like, uh, smart uh, kind of Ivy League school students. And so that's the kind of school I went to. But what they didn't have was, like, music programs and that sort of thing. So by 11th and 12th grade, I begged my parents, like, 
yo, like for the first time, can I, can I like try public school? Cause be- before then I went to like private school. So their whole thing was like, you know, you got to get into the best schools and get in the best college and da da da. And I never had a normal childhood where I socialized with kids my age, always grew up with adults. I was the youngest in the room, always in a nightclub, that sort of thing. And I'd never, like, I never knew there were kids that knew how to play music like I did. Like, I thought I was an anomaly, like a one of one. Like, oh, I'm the, I'm the cute kid that plays like an adult. And when I found out, wait, there's a performing arts school in which kids are like almost better. I wanted to go there. So um, through the skin of my teeth, I got in the school. And this is where the story uh, differentiates between Tariq and I. The way that I remember it, so that entire entire, um, experience was literally like a fish out of water thing. You know, like I'm doing all the things that one shouldn't do. Like when you see like a New York tourist, that sort of thing, like you're looking, looking around wide eyed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey guys. And, you know, I never went to school like more than t- my typical schools were like 80 students. Mm-hmm. My the school I came from was like 23 students. So it's like, wow, we're in the thousands. And literally, it was like that moment in the beginning of Clueless where like you see over there, okay, all the all the choir kids are like singing over there and then all the dancers are doing like Broadway stuff and they're like breaking out in the song and harmonizing and what we would know as boys to men are like in the bathroom. Like literally boys to men, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. me and Tariq were like the least, like every Cosby show extra, the, the guy, I said, hey, man. Like, <laughs> he, he was there, uh, 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 not Pam, but uh, what's her name from uh, the Cosby show? Oh, Lance. Uh, oh, I know you. Like I, I they, know the actress you're talking every, about. Yeah. yeah, every every jazz god, you know, who, who's the god now, like Christian McBride, Joey DeFrancesco, rest in peace, Joey. Like, people that are paradigm shifting the world of jazz. That's what I'm walking into. walking thinking like oh i'm the shit whatever and then you come into school and literally in the first hour you're like oh i got work to do (laughs) like i I just can't rely on that so what happens is because i'm i'm this high school's in philly and i live in because i live in west philly and this high school is in south philly they give away free uh bus tokens for the school and you got to get in line and 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 wait for it, you know, to get your free tokens or whatnot. And uh, I was waiting in line, and uh, this girl was talking about Prince. And instantly, you know, I was like trying to figure out like how to insert myself into <laughs> the conversation. And I heard her say something wrong. And I'm one of them people like. You know, you know, like the internet, like hashtag actually, you right. know, it's like, well, actually, uh, you're the first reply guy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, yeah, no, that's, um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a B side that he did and that's not on the album. And they're looking at me and annoyed, like no one asked you, like, who are you? Like, that's like, I'm failing already. And somehow I was just desperate to just keep the conversation going and insert myself. And I caught myself lying. I was like. Yeah, well, you know, the reason why I know is that song, because, you know, we we sampled it last night at the studio. 
<laughs> and they're like, who sampled it last night? And I'm like, we did. Now, here's the thing. In the lunchroom, so there's different cliques. And I'm, I'm supposed to be the instrumental jazz dweeb in the basement. Tariq was... So there's a hood element in the school, and most of that element are uh, their artists. And a lot of them were like graffiti artists. And in Tariq's case, I guess his story is that um, Philadelphia had a massive like campaign against graffiti. And if you got caught doing graffiti, then you got like locked up. Instead of going to juvie, it was your job to, to clean up all the graffiti in the subways or whatever. Like you would have to clock in like 30 hours. So Tariq was one of those people. And I guess the person watching him saw like Tariq actually has a talent with art and those sort of things like oh, you would make the, the walls white and then, I guess as a reward, you can paint respectable art. So <laughs> Philadelphia has one of the most murals in all of Philadelphia. So, I mean, we have like 4,000 murals all over the city. So Tariq was part of those like, you know, no to graffiti and yes to murals, that sort of thing. And his person sort of saw that you have a talent and you should go to this school. So that's how Tariq came to our school. Um, so Tariq would sit with the cool kids and he had an insane gift for playing the dozens, but he just wouldn't be like, you know, your mom's so fat when she get on the scale of ways to be continue. He would rhyme that shit. Oh, okay. So just the whole the lunch table thing and the dun, the dun, your Nike's got flaps in the holes and all that. <laughs> right. And I would just watch him afar, like. Damn, this is the cool. Like I'm sitting with the dweebs and whatnot, and I'm just looking over there, like, damn, I wish I was over there with the cool kids and everything. So I knew he had the ability to rhyme off the top of his head in real time, which is something I never saw before. And as I'm lying my ass off to those girls in the token line, I was like, yeah, I got a group with him. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't think of it. You know what I mean? I thought like they were like. Like, three of them didn't believe me, and, right. you know, I was like, uh, whatever. Like, I don't know what it was, but I went I went to class. I went to orchestra practice in the basement. And maybe 25 minutes into it, something told me, like, you, you better cover your lie. <laughs> now, here's the thing. His, his lunch period is now, even though I'm in uh, orchestra class, his lunch period is now. And we're in a uh, seven-story building. So, basically, like, I have to... Like fly the bumblebee. Excuse me. Third floor. And I finally get to the rooftop. And it was so simple. Like, yo, yo, if any join, we're a group. And he just with the dude, this is the casual nonchalance. It was just like, okay. Wow. Who's that guy? Like, basically, that's kind of how it happened. Wow. Um, and so I will say that the first bonding was me being allowed to leave the dweeb section mm. and go to the cool kids because if you remember um, in 85 of the Cosby show, like season two, mm -hmm. there's the episode where Theo and Denise, um, their car crashes and Stevie Wonder hits them. Yeah. And to avoid a lawsuit, Stevie Wonder just like, has him to the studio. <laughs> just, hey, yeah, let me, just come hang let me out. Use my Stevie Wonder and yeah, that sort of thing. And of course, they come to the studio. And for a lot of us in hip hop culture, this is the first time that we're seeing what a sampler does. Right. Right. 
And so, you know, we're seeing like Theo say, jamming on, j -j 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 right, jamming on the one, right. And what would you say at a party? So you're seeing how a sampler works on this Cosby Show episode and it's literally just sparking bing, across everyone's brains like, oh my God, like, what was that machine Stevie Wonder had? Uh, Casio, the toy, uh, the, the, you know, the, the company makes these little toy keyboards. Of course, they have a device called the SK-1, which has a three-second sampler option in this thing. So, of course, for Christmas, everyone's like, I want a sampler. I want a Casio SK-1. So, of course, I got one for Christmas. I play the Casio SK-1 and Rufus sings. With this Casio, I can record a sample of him whenever he's in the mood. Got it. I just hit this button. Oh, the Casio SK-1 sampling keyboard because the show must go on. Of course, I'm taking that joint to school. And what winds up happening is, you know, first when you get it, you just do things like, you curse words like, shit, 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 <laughs> fuck, 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 pussy, 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 like, you just do dumb shit. Um, and then I realized, like, can I do music to this thing? So I'm like, run to my drum set. Press record and play a breakbeat real quick. And I was like, yo. You can loop it. So then suddenly I found out my way of entering that circle. Instead of them just like hitting the. Right? It's 1988. So the Marley Mall era of sampling is coming into play where it's just a drum beat and whatever. And it's 88, so top billing is having a massive effect. You know, everyone breaks out doing the WAP and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it wasn't cliche, like someone had a boom box and all of a sudden we're like dancing, but I knew I could be that person and that's what's going to make me cool. So, I would run downstairs, back to the basement, and just do like kick, snare. <laughs> okay, I sit down, and I was like, guys, look, 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 and they were like, yo, you could, and literally, I became like the first bespoke Michelin star waiter, mm. where now Tariq's like. Now, I want to do top billing. Do, go do Kick the Ball by Crown Rulers. And I'm like, oh. all right, give me five minutes. Run down the basement and play uh, God Made Me Funky by the Headhunters. And then run back upstairs. And then he'd be like, nah, nah, I want to be do like Suicide by Busy Beast. Oh man, there goes that record again. Yeah, that's new by Busy Beast. That's that suicide joint. Word. So basically, I became that person to him. So we were basically a group and name only. What was the name originally? So the the deal is about a year later in 1989, um, I'm two years older than Tariq. So I graduated high school. 
And, you know, the black father thing, like, well, you know, you either going to get a job or you're going to go to college and da, da, da. So the plan was always for me to go to either Curtis Institute. It's the highest level of classical music you can go to. And, and my father's word, like world respectability. Right. Like, you know, you, you, you learn uh, classical composition and then maybe one day you'll play with the Boston Pops and, you know, you, you could make $300,000 and make something of yourself. Like that's his version of like success. And I'm like, wait, why can't I be the guy that like sells out Madison Square Garden? Like why I got to play? But for him, it was just like with what hip hop was happening, right. he just saw it as, Dah, I don't like that stuff. Like we had a real divide in our music opinion. Whereas like I grew up in a household with 3000 records. So 88, 89 is where like I'm hearing all the breakbeats that I'm like, wait, I know that from somewhere. Oh, dad has that. So I'm like putting two, two together that like, oh, all these funk records in my dad's collection is now in my music and maybe that's what I should do. But he was like, no, you're going to go to college and you're going to go to Juilliard or you're going to go to Curtis and that's final. So I had to get a job um, selling insurance so that I could pay for college. So I was going to take like a, a, a year on a break, uh, what do you call it, a gap year. Right. And I worked at an insurance company and, you know, at some point i was just like yo like let me save this money to go to the studio mm -hmm. and see what we can do but we didn't get far with it because like you know only had like enough for like three hours and you know my my arrangements and songwriting was too expansive just to get it all done in three hours so at the most i could just for like 400 bucks we just loop one beat and Tariq would freestyle <laughs> and not know what a song structure was or none of that stuff so pretty much um i will say that in the beginning uh, he named us Radioactivity, and he was uh, T Metaphor. T Metaphor. So Tariq was big on like what I call all the iambic pentameter MCs. So Cool G Rap, Kane, um, Kane, yeah. and all that. Yo, man, like the days of like playing a song through the radio, like yo, man, listen to this. And he's playing me like Wrath of Kane. The Wrath of Kane. You know, I I, I thought NWA was whack because like they got Jerry Curls. I ain't listening to them. <laughs> and he's like, no man, like, and he finally got me in like via the DOC. Like, like listen to this. Y'all ready for this? So like we're just trading off that's that sort of thing. What are you more into at that time? Well, the thing was is that, you know, when Tariq's like, yo, play kick the ball real quick. And I'm like, ah, ah, ah that's called God Made Me Funky by the Headhunters, right. a group produced by Herbie Hancock. And, da, da, da. You know, and then they toss you like in the garbage can. <laughs> yeah. like, right. Nerd. Right. <laughs> that's that's the person I was. So, you know, I grew up in I grew up in a house with three different record collectors. So my dad was more of a vocal person. He was into like like Johnny Mathis and, and Nat King Cole was his idol. He sang like Nat King Cole. Unforgettable. That's what you are. So he liked vocal stuff. Mm -hmm. Um my mom was more eclectic. 
So she would sort of be like us, crate digging. She judged music on what the album cover looked like. Mm -hmm. So if an artist like Marty Clairwig, uh, who did like Bitches Brew and Santana's album cover, like th those really weird 70s. Psychedelic looking, yeah. Right. So if it looked like that, she was in. <laughs> she, she, she purchased it. And then my sister is slightly older, fitting in with, with her girlfriends and whatnot, like in high school. She has to get into what they're into. And she's at like these these schools in which like it's it's racially mixed and whatnot. So, you know, she's coming home with the Bohemian Rhapsody 45 and and David Bowie and his physical graffiti by Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. So and the thing is is that I also the most important part of my music education journey isn't that like I'm listening to this stuff as a five-year-old, like, yes, one day I'll utilize all this. No. I'm living in a don't touch my stereo or else. Mm. And they're really big on the or else part. Like, you know, very strict household, very Joe Jackson-esque corporal punishment type of like that no. sort of thing. So I'm kind of listening to this music against my will. Mm. Um, but then, you know, as with anything, it becomes like Stockholm Syndrome. It's like, I, I hate Marvin Gaye. But now it's like, that's all you get to, like, I never get to hear the records I want to listen to because I got to listen to what they want to listen to. So that's how I'm getting my music education. And on top of that, um, the way that my dad would bin shop records, he every twice a month, he would have to go to the local mom and pop store to buy like maybe $200 worth of albums and 45s. And he's literally going the guy like, all right, what's new this week? And the guy hands him like a cash box billboard chart. Okay, give me that. that, 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 that. Next thing you know, we got like 7045s. And then, all right, what, what record should I get? You know, my dad's old. So the young guy in the record store is like, oh, you need this, that, this, that, this. And this is good. Nah, 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 nah. Like whatever the Gene Brown of, of, you know, that's what this guy is to my dad. And then we would take those records to my dad's band, right? And my dad's band would look through it and rummage it. Okay, well, we want this, that, this, that, this, that, this, that, and the other. Ah, oh, this song's whack. Nope, nope. So whatever the band thought was horrible or whack, I got to inherit. So I'm probably the only human being whose musical education starts with flop singles and the bad songs. So like, you know, the stylistics, yeah, yeah, we're going to take you make me feel brand new, but... You know, I'm like, what about Shame and Scandal in the family? They're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> or Van McCoy's like, they'll take the hustle, but not like change with the times. With the times. So whatever the flop song was, that became part of my everyday diet. Because like, oh, I own these records. These are my records. So that's the type of knowledge I had of music. And so so we started at radio as Radioactivity. And Tariq was T-Metaphor. Right. And I was a sample because, you know, I used to carry that SK-1 around. That lasted for like maybe yeah, a good six months. Stony Island Audio. Stony Island Audio.